My name is Matt Troop, and welcome to our One Team, One Promise podcast. Today, I am privileged to have uh, four individuals who lead uh, our uh, educational, uh, really, industry field, whatever you want to call it, here in Conway. We are a city of colleges, and I'm uh, privileged to have uh, three leaders uh, who represent those colleges, as well as Conway Public Schools in the room with me here today without a mask on. That's not because we're in Texas. We are right here in Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we are all maskless because we've all had the vaccine, both doses of the vaccine uh, quite a few weeks ago, I think, by now. So we are sufficiently protected. And per CDC guidelines, uh, we can have this discussion maskless, which is kind of fun because I've not been able to do that much over the last year, I'm sure, as, as you gentlemen haven't either, uh, but uh, because we're following CDC guidelines without wearing a mask. So I just want to get that out there so everyone knows we're not rule breakers and renegades uh, here in Conway, Arkansas. We're going to talk about COVID, uh, really reflecting on our uh, year uh, here as we sit. We are uh, about one year out from the first COVID-19 case in the state of Arkansas. And as we've talked about on prior podcasts, we went into action pretty quickly uh, right after that. Uh, it was March 13th that we started our drive-through, and our world has been uh, changed really ever since. And so uh, I know that the four individuals that are in the room with me uh, also had huge impact uh, on their respective campuses over the last 12 months. We're here to talk about what those changes were, how we work together as a healthcare system and and um, in industry here in Conway uh, and and how, how we approach this maybe a little differently than uh, the many communities in the state and frankly I, I think uh, as you'll hear uh, in the nation uh, many many best practices that uh, were developed and really uh, honed amongst the the four of us uh, as uh, institutions and healthcare providers so I'll start with introductions and to my left is Dr. Houston Davis Hello, Dr. Davis. How are you? Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. You might want to just tell folks who you are. I mean, I think everybody Houston knows. Davis, uh, <laughs> president at the University of Central Arkansas, and just so proud to be here, Matt Troop. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome. Thanks. Ellis, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Ellis Arnold, the president of Hendricks College, and uh, pleased to be with you again today. Yeah. Terry Kimbrough, the president at Central Baptist College. And I'm Greg Murray. I get to be superintendent of schools here in Conway. You sure do. You sure do. For how much longer? Uh, for 73 days. <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? 73 days. Yes, yes. All right. So let's go back in time here a little bit, back uh, to March of 2020. Um, I'm still getting used to the 2021 kind of <laughs> uh, description here, but... March 2020, um, there was talk of this virus really primarily overseas, hadn't hit uh, Arkansas. You know, there was a, a case or two up in the Seattle area, uh, Pacific Northwest initially. But um, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, on this podcast and certainly in the hospital about our reaction and, and where we were leading up to that. But where was where was education? Um, I imagine there was quite a bit of discussion. This wasn't completely out of left field. Uh, so, Houston, if you want to kind of go first, talk about what was what were sort of the things that led up to it, and where where was your head when this thing was first coming onto the scene? Yeah, the uh, you're right. I mean, here we are sitting March 11th, uh, a year removed from things getting very public uh, in terms of our wrestling with it. But you're right; there've been about six weeks prior to that. I mean, as late as last week of January of last year, we were 
hitting the reality. We had students abroad um, that those countries, universities that they were hosting them were already trying to think about how they were going to get them back to the U.S. Um, there was a reality that sank in there. Um, by the first couple of weeks of February, we were taking notes of what Washington State institutions were doing uh, because it's kind of started on the West Coast and then began to really hit East Coast and we knew it was coming our way. And we joked uh, in some ways, well, we looked at Italy's numbers and at that point we thought mm-hmm. there's no way it can get that way, but maybe mm-hmm. let's avoid being Italy. And then we surpassed that within just three or four months mm-hmm. from that point. So yes, January and February last year were absolutely prep work for something that there's no way that we could have really identified with the reality that we were going to face by about March 12th or 13th. Um, but there was at least a sense that this was serious. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in healthcare, you know, we talk about disasters quite a bit. Um, we have to be prepared for, in this part of the world anyway, mostly tornadoes, mm-hmm. uh, mass casualty events, uh, those kinds of things. Obviously, pandemic is somewhere on that list. But mm-hmm. as a as an educational institution, you know, is this something that you guys um, get out on a table and do exercises around, pre- prepare for? Is this how does this come about? You know, I agree with Houston. There was a lot of uh, information gathering in January and February, trying to understand uh, tabletop exercises at Hendricks didn't include a pan- did not include a pandemic. Right. So, yeah. uh, it was not on our radar uh, of disasters to prepare for. What I think I remember most vividly that uh, in early March was the week of March 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th, because I think our senior leadership team was meeting uh, not on a daily basis, but on every other hour basis. It, it, that's the most vivid memory for me the first few months was how quickly things seemed to evolve over about a 48 to 72 hour period uh, from about the 11th and 12th of March and then I think Houston said something about March the 13th, which was the day we actually announced that we were ceasing in-person classes. But it was seemed like the news and the information was pouring in uh, by the hour, and it was changing by the hour. Yeah, yeah. It um, really is remarkable to think about that, because yeah. uh, to your point, I remember very specifically, if I recall correctly, the 11th was on a Wednesday mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make sense. So I was walking into work, actually, uh, on the 9th, which I think was Monday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call from Greg Kendrick, and he was really drilling me on what I thought about this catastrophe over in Italy. And my first response is kind of like what yeah. you said, that won't ever happen here. And it is remarkable that by the end of the week, we had a drive through set up. We yep. were meeting multiple times a day. We activated, it was actually on the 11th of March that uh, we activated our incident command center. Uh, so it, it is striking just how much mm-hmm. things have changed. Yeah. But, but I didn't realize that. I used yeah. to be the same way. Did y'all cease? We did. In person, we uh, did. Uh, it's been interesting. Over the last week, we've been looking through the communications from one year ago. The first speculative communication to our student body was on March the 9th. And then on the 10th, the follow-up that we were watching things carefully. On the 11th, we sent out a communication that we thought that we might have our first patient zero. Um, and there was a reality that set in. And maybe we can kind of talk about some of the wow moment that came from that. And then two days later, we're not going to have classes anymore. But there was this naivete even to that um, moment, we thought, well, surely on the backside of spring break, we'll be back. I mean, we were thinking within 10 to 14 days, we can be back into classes. So the gravity of the situation hadn't set in at that point. And the spring break was was one of the most frustrating elements for us because we were trying to make the decision, could we hold off for five more days? 
before suspending in-person classes because spring break was around the corner, in which case then everybody's going to be going home anyway as opposed to sending them home a week early, you know, on all of our campuses and schools. And it's, it was, you know, it was just a, as it turned out for us, and I don't want to get ahead of the story, but honestly, I, that was the right, that was the safe and health and prudent decision to make. But it also gave us a chance to allow our faculty to get a total blitz education the next week to prepare for online teaching because so they had an entire week and then spring break to prepare to to, uh, to pivot to online so yeah uh, but it was very disruptive for everybody for the yeah. stu students and families. yeah and i mean that that's a that's a huge thing so to go to from in person to online what's involved with that i'm just gonna ask a very basic <laughs> question because um, I'm sure you have some faculty that are more adept at that than others. Uh, some faculty, I would think that their curriculum probably lends itself more to in-person. Or, or am I making that up? It's been a no, long time since I've been. you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, um, it was different learning level, different uh, levels of learning for different faculty members. And so there was a lot of intensive one-on-one -on -one and group training and doing some things. And for us, we converted to something we purchased these things called owls overnight, which allowed 360 classroom experiences and things. And, and we, we did a lot. We did a lot of things during that time that we were learning as we, we were. I won't say we were building the ship as we were about to sail it, but it, in some ways it felt like that. Yeah, yeah. But you didn't have a choice. Yeah. Now, when did the public schools go online, Dr. Murray? Was that spring well, break? Well, we uh, we were told by the governor on the 12th, I believe it was, to. Uh, uh, you stay home on the 13th, Friday the 13th, if you want to, but next week you're out of school, and then we'll tell, tell you more later on. So we just told everybody mm -hmm. to go home, and uh, we'll, we'll put a pause there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after spring break, the governor came out and said, we're staying longer, and then finally came out and said, we're done. And once he, he said, we're done, then that's when we, we realized, okay, we've got to do something for the rest of the semester, because we did not know what our timelines were. And uh, we did not leave the students on the 13th um, prepared to do what we're doing, uh, have, have been doing. So we had to do a whole lot of uh, scrambling and getting some Chromebooks together and did some drive-through deliveries and, and trying to get, get some, our students and teachers ready to go. Yeah. Uh, Terry, how about, how about y'all? Same, same sort of thing? Similar. We, yeah. we canceled classes on Thursday and Friday the 12th, the 13th. Hmm. With the thinking that we would be prepared to not come back from spring break, but I told the faculty and staff, I'll see you after spring break. Mm -hmm. I was confident we would come back. And of course, between that time, we bought some owls too, because I, <laughs> it took a while to get them. I mm -hmm. think you got all of them, um, <laughs> Ellis. <laughs> and we had to recall our all of our fine arts department was on tour in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the decisions that I made that I really second-guessed because that was on Thursday the 12th. Mm -hmm. And they were scheduled to be gone all of spring break and made a lot of people unhappy. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I'm being way, way overly mm -hmm. cautious. But in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think they think so too now. But, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it, it, it took a long time for college students to take this seriously and I'm sure K through 12 too and I didn't take it seriously honestly at first yeah until mm -hmm. it really really hit home that this is yeah it's it's growing yeah. very quickly you know having this conversation makes me recall so my son at the time was a senior at Hendricks mm -hmm. 
and he was going to go to Japan uh, for his spring break, and that trip got canceled. So I, I did save some money out of this deal, <laughs> at least a little bit, uh, on that on that trip. But he he still thinks he's owed a trip to Japan. So um, you bring up something about Chromebooks. I mean, was that an issue? Just being able to procure the equipment you needed to be able to go virtual. I know at the hospital we had some of these same issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was one of the things I just didn't anticipate uh, happening. Was that a challenge? Uh, well, it was huge. I think that um, in the spring of last year, we had 2,400 courses total, mm-hmm. and only 13% of those courses were online. So mm-hmm. somebody can do the quick math. Yeah. That's how many classes had to, in roughly a two-week period of time, I'll give our Center for Teaching Excellence some credit, they started mid-February to begin a migration for how could faculty pivot to online. But one of the things that we didn't really think think about the the magnitude of it at that time is how many of our students, if we were going to pivot them to online, again, 87% of our courses were not, they had to have the technology they had to have access to the inter- the, the tools. Mm-hmm. They had to have, have access to the broadband. Um, and, and, and they had to probably have a dependable paying source that was making certain that that broadband was staying on. So very quickly we realized that a lot of UCA students, whether we liked it or not, we were the closest thing to home that they had. And they were mm-hmm. also really dependent upon us to allow them to mm-hmm. stay there mm-hmm. so that they'd have the access to the tools to be able to finish their courses. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. we made a decision very early on that no matter what, um, we were not going to close down the residence halls to students that needed that. That was one difference yeah. in what we did compared to some universities. Yeah. We were we were sort of a blend of that. I think, you know, um, we really wanted the students to go home unless they absolutely had significant family issues or if they were international students and, and kept them there. So we, we ended up with about 100 students who did remain on campus. But dining services was closed. I mean, every, everything else, the campus is basically shut down. Uh, I, I had to drag my son out of there, literally. Yeah, but, yeah. and they all, <laughs> there was a process they could apply to stay, and, of course, it was kind of vetted, and, you know, we were really trying to send them home who had access to technology, for example. You know, if they didn't have that or they weren't going to be able to continue their coursework, then we we wanted to try to accommodate them. So that, that was a, a serious factor of consideration. And, and we remained open, dining services, but just, just to reconfigure everything for everything to go, you know, <laughs> no, no dining halls, to get it, take it back to their residence hall. And, and they're still doing that, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, very few eat in the dining hall. It's open, but, you know, they're used to the to-go, and, uh, and, and it, it, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. provided laptops in our case to students and faculty that needed them. Uh, internet mm. access—you you, just—you can't tell them to do something that they can't do. Yeah, yeah. And pay tuition, right? <laughs> <laughs> we uh, actually sent all of our kids home um, and told them to stay home. That was supposed to be funny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we don't have residence yeah. halls, <laughs> but logistically, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll get that ball. after you listen to the podcast twice. <laughs> logistically, on the technology part of it, we we ramped up and ordered additional Chromebooks, but those Chromebooks set in a ship on the West Coast yeah. because of some uh, embargo or some trade issue for the <clears> longest time. And so we, we had some technology issues that were not related to not knowing how to do the technology, which couldn't get it there because of logistics. At, at Conway Regional, we have a, a brand promise, if you will, that, that we promise to be bold, exceptional, and called. So I'll, I'll ask you a bold question here. Did any of you contemplate just bucking the trend and saying, you know what? 
Um, I don't care what the rest of the world is doing. We're, we're going to be in person. This is the way education is supposed to happen, by golly, um, and, and push forward. I, and I ask that in part, and I won't disclose the institution I'm talking about, but I have a, a son that's a senior, and he's looking at colleges, and has visited a couple of places that did not close during the, during the pandemic. Uh, they, they still held um, on-site uh, education and learning. But w- was that ever something that you just decided, by golly, we're, j- we're just going to buck the trend? Yeah, I'll be bold and say I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it lasted yeah. about 12 hours, but, <laughs> but I did. And I think, I think I know at least one of the institutions you're talking about. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm close to retirement, but I didn't want to be that close. Right. So <laughs> it, I did think about that. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, just it's kind of a reality check. I mean, yeah. I thought we could do that. Yeah, we that never was on our radar. But of course, you know, as a chronology of this unfolds, we get to the summertime. We, we're sort of the lone ranger when it comes to making decisions that are against the flow, if you will, about mm-hmm. the fall semester. Because that, you know, by deciding to go fully remote, I will have to say, not that I remember the date, July 29th, uh, that we made that decision. Uh-huh. Um, it was the most somber uh, board meeting I think I've participated in in over 30 years. Wow. And um, because it, while it was difficult to send the students home on March the 13th and miss commencement and all those sort of things, are gonna, um, making a decision, I, I might get emotional talking about it, you know, yeah. to not open in person, um, knowing the financial risk that were associated with that as well was a significant decision. Um, and one for us was the right decision, and yeah. uh, and and it's uh, and things have worked out enormously, uh, in large part, um, because of our relationship with Conley Regional, and had it not been uh, the things that we learned from our consortium and listening and learning from folks around this table, but being able for us to prepare to return to in person with some extraordinary testing measures would never have happened had it not been for Conley Regional. You know, this is something that's maybe a little inside baseball here. We don't need to get yeah. too far into detail on this, but and certainly I don't appreciate it because I'm a hospital guy. But you talk about the financial impact. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think of of college as I pay tuition, but students spend other money on campus yeah. as well, don't yeah. they? Uh, that that's a big part of the overall enterprise that you need to support. Absolutely, uh, the yeah. room the room and board is is uh, in the millions of dollars per semester. For yeah. a small college like Hendricks, even, and so you know, you're foregoing that, uh, and then we were faced with the question of, well, do we do we reduce tuition partially uh, because it's not in person? We know it's costing us more to deliver it than ever before, right? But from the uh, you know the, the student and family perspective, and so you know we made some adjustments there too, all of which none of which do we regret. I mean, we regret not having the chance to have them on campus, but the decisions and the basis we made that decision. We we feel still very good about and are thrilled to have folks back. You know, in the spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with um, Ellis that I, th- I think that it was the confidence born out of the work that we did in May, June, and July because of the testing, because of the timeliness of the testing, and because of a couple of other moves that we made to just take entire. We had two hundred twenty nine mm-hmm. rooms mm-hmm. offline and available to us. Um, that was a unique set of circumstances that allowed us to be confident about what we did in the fall and what we continue to do this spring. But if we'd not had that work in May and June, 
there's no way that we're among the higher education institutions. And I, th I think all three of us uh, are very proud of what we've been able to do this year. And then we all three know from our talking with colleagues nationally that we really sit in a very small uh, group of institutions that have even been able to approximate uh, what a normal semester might look like within this entire academic yeah. year. So it's a blessing. Yeah, I actually almost feel guilty. We have an academic consortium called the Associated Colleges of the South, which is everything from Rhodes and Sewanee to Washington Lee, Davidson, all the way to the east, and Trinity in Texas. Um, but our situation and our collaboration and the work we've done together and the resources that Conway Regional has brought to us as a group and our community uh, is unparalleled by anybody, whether it's Memphis, Birmingham, you name, you know, it doesn't matter. San Antonio, I, no, and I, I almost have to keep my mouth shut because they want to throw things at me because we're, <laughs> we've had so much in so much a stronger position in terms of information and being able to manage things. Yeah, and, to, and for those that may not recall this or have forgotten it, you know, testing turnaround time back in March of last year was, was, a week. was horrific. Yeah, yeah if you were lucky, and then sometimes yeah. even longer. Um, and we had cases where we were bringing people out of out of quarantine at day 17 after a negative test. So um, it, it was it was really really a challenge. And the only tool we had really to fight the pandemic, and, and in a sense, up until the vaccine, the only tool that we had was testing. It was the only way we knew uh, how to how to control this. And so, um, it, thus, the importance of our of our partnership, so that we can consolidate our efforts, consolidate our focus, and and really look at that. You know, I know that, um, Dr. Davis, you were um, really considering housing pretty early on, if I recall. Was that something that was a, a state mandate, or was that just y'all being proactive about quarantining students? And You know, s strangely, I think Dr. Brad Teague, um, our athletic director, and I um, had a lot of back and forth between our conference office for athletics yeah. and the NCAA um, regarding what the fall semester was going to look like on athletics. And it became very clear that the requirements for what you were going to have to do for student-athletes were almost the mm -hmm. blueprint for what you were going to have to be able to do for your entire student body. Mm -hmm. And there's a note by my computer that says, test, trace, isolate. I mean, it's yeah. just on a, on a post-it um, that was like from early May of last year. Wow. That if we couldn't test in a timely manner, if we couldn't trace to who they had contact with, and we didn't have a place to put them, and we had to be able to mm -hmm. isolate them quickly. Mm -hmm. And each of those things, time was of the essence. Mm -hmm. If we couldn't do those three things and couldn't do them quickly, then we're not going to be mm -hmm. playing sports. But quite frankly, if we couldn't do those three things and couldn't do them quickly, we're not going to be open in a residential, mm -hmm. and there's we ha we'll have to go to online. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, early early May, that was crystal clear. Um, the NCAA guidance at that time, we're mm -hmm. really talking about best practice, but if you look back, it was eerily close to some of the early language on concussion protocol mm -hmm. that became mandated. Yeah. So what Brad and I compared was, we said, this is sure following a similar pattern to concussion protocol. They're going to eventually say you have to do this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's where really that May 15th, telephone call that, that uh, Matt and Ellis and I had to start the ball rolling. I mean, it was that mm -hmm. early, but I would say that that urgency kind of fell out of the fact that um, NCAA is almost 
paving the way for if you're even thinking about it, be able to do this. And then there's the strangeness. We had an entire conference that fell apart on that fact. Um, and the Southland Conference is is not the same anymore because the Louisiana schools said there's no way they can do it. And the Texas schools said that they could. And we were in position to feel pretty good about what we could do. So yeah. there were huge decisions in May of last year that set the tone um, and the urgency uh, about everything that we did mm-hmm. come August and September. So this, you know, being able to to test, trace, isolate, really helped to drive mm-hmm. what you could do in the fall. Mm-hmm. You know, how much you could have on campus exactly. sports. You know, if that was even going to be contemplated. And so you mentioned May fifteenth. I remember. <laughs> That date, I think, if, if I recall correctly, I was on staycation. I do know that much. I forget the date I was on staycation because we couldn't go anywhere. Um, and I uh, was actually on my back porch just reading a book. And I think I got a call or a text uh, from you, Dr. Davis, which was it was kind of interesting because I had had some of these same same thoughts. Um, at that point, we had been you know testing, I guess, for about three months. And um, you know, I began to think, you know, how can we – we've got, you know, thousands and soon to be tens of thousands of test results. Um, how can we use this to do what you're talking about, to trace and isolate? So what was what, what prompted that call on the 15th? And, and tell everybody kind of what, what came of that. Desperation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ellis okay. wanted to hop in. He, he's going to tell the real story, then I'll yeah. tell the story. You go ahead. <laughs> no, I'll tell you, actually, there's a, there's a memory, and it does go back to March 11th of, of last year when we thought we had patient zero. Um, and I hope I'm not talking too much out of school here. Um, the the state exactly at that point, they, they they had it was like the capacity to test twenty or twenty five citizens a day out of what three point two million Arkansans. And on the eleventh, we had a student who's uh, we 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 thought was again patient zero. The state has to worry about three point two million Arkansans. We don't have the luxury of that. We've got to worry about Hendricks and UCA, CBC, and Conway Public Schools. We've got to worry about the city of colleges. We've got to worry about the economy of Faulkner County and the surrounding counties. And I think that all 50 states have found that. Um, If you could harness the local potential, what assets do you have, you could probably work up a better solution. So May was a joke desperation. It was really, we are going to have to solve this. And my, my bet at that point was we had the beginnings of asset, assets that could help us to test, trace, and isolate. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally correct. Fair else. Yeah. That's, you nailed it. <laughs> and so from there, I know we, we had talked about kind of a general structure and framework, but then in, in June we started having a, a weekly phone call, Tuesday mornings at, <laughs> at 9, um, and really talking about testing turnaround, testing volumes, trends by age group. Um, at, at that point, I'm going to guess we had several thousand, uh, a database of several thousand people. Um, and so t- talk, about, talk about that group and kind of what that, what that meant to, to you all to give you a comfort level uh, over the summer. Well, I'll, I'll speak first. I was a, a late arriver to the group. Yep. Um, I think uh, after a couple conversations, we uh, uh, I was invited to be a part of it, and, and I primarily am a listener uh, because the uh, issues that my friends at the three colleges uh, deal with are some, somewhat and, and very often drastically different than what I deal with. But it's very nice to be able to hear common concerns, very nice to hear common solutions, very near, uh, uh, nice to be able to, to know that there were 
processes in the background leading up to things happening. Uh, because in, in large part, we were waiting on other agencies to be able to help us in some way or the other, uh, and those agencies were looking around the room trying to figure it out themselves. <laughs> uh, it was just, pandemics just, as we've learned, just create such mass confusion, and uh, people have to realign their thinking, realign their processes. And, and so it's been, it's been a delight to be able to listen and be a part of it and, and hopefully contribute in a small way. Uh, to be able to to make it better here in Conway. Yeah. And certainly you all were able to share best practices, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the documents I know that we created to go out to students to talk about um, isolation, social distancing, you know, when you test, when you don't test. Those are all things that we really developed together in a very open and transparent way. So that it was it was available to all. We weren't we weren't all recreating the wheel, which made the workload I think for everybody much more tolerable, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think and, uh, having a unified message so that they don't say, well, UCA's doing one thing, Hendrix another, and K through 12, and you know, we, we were all saying the same thing. And we were the envy of a lot of yes. other colleges in the state and, because some of them <clears throat> had no resources available, as, as they said, and they certainly didn't have a, a, a consortium like this. To, I did a lot of listening too, but I just listened and I think I'd go do likewise. Yeah. You know, it's uh, not to, to have the listeners have the impression that those of us in this room were the only people on that Tuesday morning call. I think oh, one true. of the reasons that that call is so beneficial is to have the athletic directors of our respective institutions and with sometimes our HR VPs on those calls and to have our COVID response coordinators on our campuses and and doctors from our campuses and all the experts and, and labs experts from the hospital uh, and the breadth of the coverage. I mean, it's, the disciplines are all covered. So they're a pretty large group of folks on those calls every single Tuesday at 9 o'clock. And, um, and we have excellent attendance and we have uh, lively dialogue yeah. and, uh, and we solve problems. And, yeah. and, that's, and I think that's what has been really good about the group is that um, it is a a very diverse group who bring a lot of issues from each institution. Um, so it's, yeah. it's been great. And I, th- I think I, I agree, Ellis, about the composition of the group. I mean, what, we usually have there are 18, 19, mm-hmm. 20 people, pretty mm-hmm. standard mm-hmm. in that conversation. But I appreciate this, and I don't know that I've ever thanked um, the leaders of the respective organizations. I appreciate that all, almost without fail that, that the five of us have been in that yeah. call every single yeah. time because yeah. that, that, that expressed an importance about that meeting, that we all had a lot going on. Yeah. But if we were going to all carve out every single Tuesday mm-hmm. morning for what are we now? 43, 44, 45 (laughs) weeks. It's getting to be pretty significant. Um, If we were going to do that, then I think that set the tone for the rest of our teams. And by the way, I really do appreciate that of all of you guys. It was certainly a priority. And, you know, to think about the complexities here, you've got students returning to campus. They needed to be tested, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Athletes who had testing multiple times Mm -hmm. per week, it Mm -hmm. seemed like. Mm -hmm. Crazy amount of testing with some of those athletes. And then just coordinating and making sure that we were getting results timely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, providing feedback, uh, managing, you know, as you said, tracing and isolation once it occurred um, is just a massive, massive mm-hmm. effort. Uh, just, 
you know, you can't, I don't think, I don't think we can do it justice talking about it. I, it really no. is a tremendous amount of work. Well, anecdotally, it's kind of like the Conway Regional is kind of like the U.S. Postal Service. Nothing, sleet or snow, nothing's going <laughs> to stop them from getting the job done. Because uh, when we had a, a foot of snow on the ground, you know, and we do surveillance testing, we're testing half our students every single week in the village. And uh, testing was three times that week. There's a foot of snow on the ground and the hospital people were there uh, doing the test. And so we didn't miss a beat. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, that is really going the extra mile for our community and, um, and helping keep our campuses and our community safe. Yeah. yeah. Let me make one, one final thought about why that, why the consortium was important to allow us to make good decisions. I mean, there were four, see if I can remember this correctly, there were, we decided the positivity rates, watching those week to week, um, obviously turnaround time of test. Um, active use of hospital beds, uh, your institution yeah. as well as surrounding institutions, um, and then how we were managing our ability to isolate our isolation and quarantine space. Well, of those four things, the only thing that we controlled directly was quarantine and isolation. We had to be a part of something that was broader than just the assets on our campus because positivity rate, testing turnaround, and bed access in the hospitals, those were things that we were going to be a part of a conversation, not leading that conversation. So um, it, there's, there's no way that we could have had, kind of had that four-way test um, of, of the things we think, say, and do. We go to Rotary here. Yeah, um, right, about right. COVID without forming up a consortium like this because it allowed us to confidently make decisions week to week. And I would say that across this last year, there probably have been no three or four weeks in a row that all looked uniform to yeah. one another. Uh, we've had to make many adjustments throughout the year. Yeah. You know, I've heard you say this several times, Houston. Um, what, what kind of impact did this have with with families? You know, when I was uh, in college, I'm pretty sure I was bulletproof. Um, and I, I've had even my own kids, you know, kind of think, oh, well, COVID, COVID can't hurt me. I'm, I'm a kid. You know, what's the big deal? But, but certainly parents were, were concerned. Um, what kind of role did did our consortia play in helping to ease parent concerns? Or was, was that front of mind for many of you all? Oh, I, I think it was it was one of the leading message points of our plan for last fall and as we've gone throughout this year was to be able to portray the work that we were doing in partnership with our local hospital um, and other educational institutions. Um, students, you're exactly right. I don't know that they were necessarily persuaded by that, but I always talk about we don't recruit students, we recruit mamas um, yeah. or whoever <laughs> plays that motherly yeah. role um, in someone's life. Um, we needed to make certain that those people were confident about um, the type of care and attention and that we were not just hoping for things to go right, but we were going to measure what mattered most and make decisions based on data. Yeah. Um, you couldn't do that without the consortium. Yeah. Um, and so it was very important to be able to message what we did through this. Yeah. You know, I've never really looked into this data before I asked you all, is there any data that, that says that you tested, and I mean the, the, the four institutions here, more or less than other communities? Is there, is there data that we had better testing or more testing? Um, I don't know. I know I watched the numbers roll up in the fall when UCA was having to test athletes three times a week, you know, yeah. for NCAA protocols, and, and we had nobody on campus. And, of course, our numbers have kind of gone up significantly and quickly. Um, 
But I don't think anybody's probably testing as often as frequently as we are. And I say that collectively for our group, yeah. overall speaking. I just think um, it's more symptomatic people on campuses that want to go get tested. And, you know, um, in student-athlete populations at a large public university is, is a smaller percentage of the student body. And then you got, um, so there's not, you know, for schools like CBC and Hendrix and others, student athletes make a large percentage. And if you're NCAA, you're going to be doing a lot yeah. of testing. But 68% of our students are athletes. So, wow, you know, it's, it's a big deal. And we did, we did not test surveillance testing. Uh, our conference uh, did give a pretty rigorous checklist, yeah. and yeah. we screened. And we only tested symptomatic, but it's, yeah. it's worked well. We've missed a few games, canceled a few games. Uh, but we travel a lot. Most of our games are in the St. Louis area. It's where yeah. our conference is based. So it's, uh, you know, and, it, and there was an issue on attendance. <laughs> Some didn't want any fans, and we've dealt with that. So there's a lot of things in the athletic area that people don't even see. It's like, you know, you go there, and you, you can have fans, but they come here, and they don't want any fans. And it's uh, it's just been a, a daily, weekly struggle with all of those things. Yeah. So and, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think one of the things I observed, we, we've, we passed 13,000 tests this week, I mean, since the beginning of this sort of testing protocol within the health um, center as, as well as in partnership with you guys. Um, I, you know, I think it's been more a story of when we've been able to test whoever we needed to test when we needed to mm -hmm. test them because of the consortium. Yeah. And that's ranged yeah. from weeks where we would have mass testing events that were strategically located where the numbers of non-athlete testing would be significantly higher to basically the, 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 the students or faculty and staff that were tested were those that were either symptomatic or were um, personally they thought maybe they'd been exposed to and they were doing it out of an abundance of caution. But the beauty is go all the way back to June and July of last mm -hmm. year when we really got things rolling. We never once had to worry about how many tests we needed to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. We knew that we could meet whatever that demand was because of mm -hmm. the partnership. Mm -hmm. um, we were able to manage this because of this partnership. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact is, and you're making me recall this as well, by working together, uh, one healthcare institution, one mm -hmm. testing location, mm -hmm. uh, and, and three campuses, and certainly to the extent that we had public school kids come in and getting tested, the Conway Public Schools, having that uniformity of one, one locus of test, testing and test results helped manage that a lot easier because I know some of the challenge and it did happen mm -hmm. kids would go to, to Little Rock to get tested or go here or there and sometimes you don't know mm -hmm. um, where they tested did they what was the result uh, and by working together we made it easier for everybody really to manage the entire process so um, you know you, you talked about all the planning you did in the spring you know we did a lot of planning in the spring too because again if you'll recall disaster was was happening that, that summer. The, the peak of this thing was supposed to hit in, in April, then it got moved back to May, and then it kind of went away. And so we did a lot of planning, and then in the fall, we got to dust off of those plans and, <laughs> and, and look at them again. Um, but one area where we did plan was, was vaccines, which didn't exactly happen the way that we had hoped they would happen. Uh, we hoped that we would get, uh, to your point, uh, Dr. Davis, it, as much vaccine as we wanted uh, day one, and um, we would roll this out and uh, and go about it. But the, you know, the reality is we had a limited supply and quantity. And so our, our focus transitioned from testing, testing, testing to 
uh, vaccines and a limited number of vaccines and and how do we how do we distribute that vaccine um, in a way that's effective? So if you can, you guys just talk a little bit about how that how that process worked out. Um, and there were some decisions that had to be made with a scarce resource mm-hmm. uh, initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God we're not there now, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly initially. Well, back to my the consortium I mentioned earlier. I'll just say that, um, and this isn't the work of the consortium, but when the governor included education in the 1B category, um, it was a game changer. And um, no other is, I think I have this correct, I don't know that there's any other state of the colleges that I'm working with, that I have conversations with, that are in that same category. And uh, none of their people. So when I tell them that 86% of our faculty and staff are already vaccinated and that, you know, a couple of hundred student employees as well, you know, they just want to throw things at me because I mean, there it's just uh, it's it, so it's like night and day. So it's um, that that was the game changer for us. And then just you know, being able to work with you all as we as the vaccines did become more available, and trying to and frankly, I don't know how it felt from the hospital standpoint, but to me, it felt like our community was doing so well that we were ready to advance through the one B subcategories at a much quicker rate than the rest of the state was. At least that's what it felt like. Oh, I, I, ta- I don't have any data to back me up here, but yes, we, we moved through vaccine and we're looking to stick yeah. people yeah. Um, because there just weren't, weren't the population yeah. there. And I, I think, I, I think it's fair to say at a much faster rate, mm-hmm. we don't have that issue now today, as I sit here, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, we're up to, you know, over 9,200 and probably by the time this thing pot, uh, airs well over 10,000 total doses uh, administered. But what, what I liked was the way that that group, that consortia came together and said, okay, we've got, uh, we've got a limited number yeah. of vaccine and I forget yeah. the exact numbers. You all have staff, um, some of who, if they got COVID, I mean, could end up in an ICU bed, yep. uh, God forbid, die. Yep. Um, and so we had, you know, some really, I think, healthy discussion. It, it um, was a desert island kind of conversation. Yeah, it, it kind I of mean, was, yeah. You know, and, yeah. And yet everybody wanted to do the right thing, and we all tried, and we all, at least that's what, you know, we had, we knew we could only provide a certain number of names. We had to trust each other. We had to provide those we thought were greatest at risk that were going to get the, you know, most benefit and, and from a health and safety standpoint. Yeah. And um, there wasn't, I mean, I think that's a pretty interesting, I didn't thought about that, but I think that's a really interesting point as to how that could have been so contentious in so many arenas. And yet, you know, everybody sitting around this table all tried to do the, the right thing and the same thing to protect those most vulnerable on our campuses. Well, and to, to a- apply the same rules about who is going to get that limited dosing. Yeah. You know, in other words, we're not just going to take care of Conway Public Schools and forget y'all or, you know, vice versa, UCA and, and to the detriment of everybody else. Um, I am not one to, to laud <laughs> praise on our organization as much as I probably should, mm-hmm. although I, I, I certainly am very proud of my team. But um, I, when I talked to my colleagues all across, uh, mainly Texas, but, but the country, and I you know, tried to get from them, you know, how are you guys rationalizing this? You've got mm-hmm. this limited number of vaccine. You've got some people that really need it more than others. How are you, how are you addressing this? And I would just get a blank stare, and they'd say, I, I don't know, Matt. We just, 
whoever signs up first, we're just giving people shots. I mean, that was pretty much it. And um, it was there. There was no venue and no real, you know, avenue for them to have these kind of conversations, which are difficult to do mm-hmm. because, like you said, Ellis, you're you're sitting across the table from somebody who's, you know, got some really vulnerable staff that they really need. Yeah. And um, and how do you have that conversation in a way that that doesn't end up in you know some of us uh, uh, shouting and screaming at each other? <laughs> The other thing that I would say is that I appreciated very much the uh, advocacy role that Comedy Regional had for all of us. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can advocate in our own own separate worlds, but in the medical community, we don't have a whole lot of legs to stand on. Uh, we don't know who to go to and what to say and what to do. And I appreciate very much uh, the work that the hospital did to be able to advocate for us, to be able to get as much as we could, as quickly as we could, and get it done as, fish- as efficiently as we could. So thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Well, and I, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, Baptist uh, was at the table right there with us. And so mm-hmm. uh, the ability for us mm-hmm. to work together um, mm-hmm. and, and pool our vaccine and decide, you know, how we're going to use their vaccine versus our vaccine. And, and again, uh, with the end in mind that we were going to take care of the most vulnerable first uh, in compliance with, with state guidelines um, to, to do that together. That just doesn't happen in any community, uh, but but only in Conway, I think. Yeah, I, it's actually the thing that was on my mind is how we've had some remarkable, um, a willingness to set aside um, territory and say what's best for the community. I mean, I would, I would dare say during COVID, I mean, CBC and Hendricks and UCA have probably worked together more than we have in decades i mean and and that's without having a good data point to to point to because i'm relatively new to the area but my bet is that's a safe Mm -hmm. um, assumption Mm -hmm. and then it really did unlock things i mean when when conway regional and and baptist conway and the pharmacist in the area um kind of came together and say all right let's see what we have in totality and let's be smart about and you were exactly right to say who are the most vulnerable. We we have to keep our eye on that from a health care standpoint. That's the yeah. same time that because the state tripped higher education and education over into one B a little bit earlier than we thought, we were feeling those pressures. And and I I think because the the health systems and the pharmacist were so big about coming together in a partnership, mm-hmm. it set the nice tone for us coming to the table. And um, I know that I personally, and Matt knows some of these details, I mean, I had to take a breath for a day or two because okay. there was a lot that was happening every 24 hours at that time. Cool. And, and we had to allow that partnership to let some good decisions flow out that unlocked things for yeah. the most vulnerable. Yeah. In the city of Conway, yeah. Yeah. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, you know we were fortunate in that we had – we had ample places to have some vaccine clinics, and we have had, but they, from the first day, just offered all of their resources. And and you know all of our leadership, and, you know, they offered it. They didn't push it on us, but they've been there when we needed us, and we really appreciate the city. Yeah, very, very much. And, and UCA and the School of Nursing. Um, as I think everyone knows, they don't let just anybody give shots. <laughs> they did a good job on mine. And, uh, I didn't even know when they stuck me. You know, to, to ramp up, you know, 1,000 shots in a day or 500 shots in a day, you know, whatever it was, to have the staff, the infrastructure to do that um, would have been really, really difficult um, for, for any of us, whether it's Baptist or Conway, to do on our own, you know, relying mm-hmm. on that student base. Uh, they got a lot of good clinical experience. <laughs> and the, I'm telling you, James, and I, I just know him, 
mm-hmm. the customer service and the, just that atmosphere was so pleasant. You know, they interacted with people. It wasn't just line up and get a shot. So I really appreciate all of the the people at Conway Regional. Yeah, and and the vaccine clinic with the schools, we had pharmacies coming together um, as well. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. and, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, uh, we we made contact with a local pharmacist, and he just jumped on it and said, we're going to take care of this, and uh, within a short amount of time, we were able to get our folks vaccinated and, and, and do so uh, very efficiently, and I appreciate that partnership, as, as Terry mentioned, with the city that made the facility happen, but also the... Uh, and the nurses and et cetera that, that made uh, made that happen. It was it was a wonderful event. One of the one of the things that I've seen with our folks that they have been the most grateful about mm-hmm. in this process. Uh, thank you so much for making that happen. I heard mm-hmm. it so many times. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I I want to say this about our our nursing faculty and our students. I mean, what an amazing time <laughs> to be learning their craft yeah. and, 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 and training for this as a career. Um, uh, Dr. Susan Gatto and then all of those faculty and students, um, they, they really have. It wouldn't matter if you had a tray of doses available if you didn't have the manpower to be able to administer those doses. And, and uh, we've been very proud of them, and they deserve a pat on the back too. So there's so many things that have, have fallen into, okay, you can't do this alone. But when you harness all the assets that you have, mm-hmm. what can you get done if you work together? And this has really been a great example of that. I think that's very, very well said. Yeah, we, we could not have done as many vaccinations in the time frame we did if, if not for those students. We couldn't have managed tracing and taking care of athletes uh, the way that we did if not for this collaboration and we were sharing data um, you know, so many wonderful, wonderful things, I think, that, that speak to that uh, idea of partnership that even transcends competition, right? Uh, we have a very competitive uh, healthcare landscape here here in Conway, those of you who don't know, the two or three of you literally who may not know. Um, and uh, I, I do think it says a lot about, you know, the, the commitment to our mission and the fact is we have two nonprofit uh, organizations that, uh, that that come together for that single purpose. So, you know, one thing I'd, I'd like to end on is a, maybe a final question. Um, it, ha- it has to do with COVID, obviously. I get asked this question a lot, and I'd be interested in your perspective from an education uh, perspective. Um, but, but how is education going to be different post-pandemic? You know, I can point to in healthcare um, telemedicine. I, I think 10 years from now, I'm going to point back to the, the pandemic as the launch of, of telemedicine. It was always kind of out there, never really took off. Uh, the, the pandemic has, has really changed that. How will education be different going forward? <laughs> Who wants to go first? Well, I'll, I'll throw, I mean, one thing out that just, and it's kind of in line with what you're thinking in telemedicine. I mean, I think about counseling and advising roles mm-hmm. uh, on a college campus. Um, you know, it, it was it was very important that we were already piloting some um, telecounseling um, opportunities pre-COVID uh, because that ended up being the way that we've served a lot of our students, faculty, and staff. Now, so, let me just ask a stupid question. Are you talking about like career counseling or No, no, counseling? no. Me- just mental, mental health, health. health. counseling. Okay. Sorry. Yes, Sorry. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm apologizing. Yeah. I should, should have clarified that. Um, students have been able to more easily make mm-hmm. and keep appointments mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with advising mm-hmm. from an academic advising yeah. uh, as well <laughs> as career counseling. It's been so much easier 
easier for those professionals to be able to make and keep appointments uh, wow. with students. Yeah. I mean, those are efficiencies that there's no way that we would have probably tried it at the scale yeah. that we did, but uh, necessity becomes the mother of invention. I mean, and we absolutely have proven that those are tools that will carry on far beyond yeah. this. And then you take it to the classroom. I mean, we had some faculty members um, who probably didn't even check their email pre-COVID that have, have out of necessity, um, adopted tools for consideration of how they, whether it was in face-to-face classes or in an online environment, that they, they probably would not have tried uh, prior to this, but they come out of it, um, I think, uh, probably adopting permanently some of those mm-hmm. tools, even if they're going to go back to face-to-face instruction mm-hmm. in the classroom. There's bound to be an improvement in the way that we can serve and disseminate information. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I want to follow up on Houston's comment about technology because I think it permeates a lot of areas for the future for us to think about. But um, it's kind of interesting. Last May, I was on a consortial call, and one of the college presidents in Florida was concerned that the pivoting to online had gone so well and so smoothly at many of our institutions that, and these are schools whose missions are similar to Hendricks in that they are highly residential, you know, in-person, I mean, that's the nature of that mission for those colleges. And thinking, are we about to be our own worst enemy by doing such a good job? Well, within about 90 days of that, when people were clamoring to come back to campus, and, you know, so it became clear that that was not going to be the case. But, um, so, for us, I think the in-person experience is at the heart of what we do is a part of our mission to provide the kind of engaged learning experiences that we, we want to have. However, it has been interesting to see how technology uh, has uh, been an asset to our enrollment management and recruitment mm-hmm. nationwide in ways that we otherwise might not have explored. Um, seeing applications from you know, 40 states quicker than we've ever had before, things like that. Uh, the same thing's true on the fundraising. You know, there's no substitute for the fundraisers to have the face-to-face interaction with people. But there's also lots of donors and alums around the country that you really want to go see, but you can't justify, you know, flying to, um, you know, someplace on the far east coast or west coast for a single individual that now we realize, well, we maybe there are new ways of connecting and building yeah. those relationships. And so uh, all the way to having... Um, more team meetings. I would rather sit around the table like we are this afternoon and have a face-to-face, in-person conversation. But from an efficiency standpoint, I think we've learned that there's times in which it's just more efficient for everybody and more cost-effective to just um, have a Teams meeting. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so there are a lot of, I think technology is going to be a real interesting um, piece on how, what elements of that that we hold on to and build on going forward. Um, yeah. yeah. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it'll ever go back completely. Uh, we, we were fortunate in that we've been teaching online for eight, maybe nine years. So for a lot of our faculty and the, many, all of those online students, you know, there, there was no pivoting. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. we, they were doing what they had been doing, and the faculty, a few of them had a, a learning curve. Excuse me. But I think the ones that want to be back on campus can't wait. Mm-hmm. And then a few, maybe a mm-hmm. few, the percentage would be low mm-hmm. of those that say, you know, I kind of like this. Yeah. Uh, because the honest 
truth is most of them don't like it. Uh, they miss seeing people being in the classroom. So there's always been some that learn mm -hmm. online just as well, but there's <laughs> just not many. But mm -hmm. I don't think we can ever just go back. Mm -hmm. For one thing, we bought too much technology. <laughs> <laughs> you made an investment. <laughs> Got to use those out. Made a huge investment. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give one positive example, one one negative example. Of what's going well? Uh, this is an example of how technology is going well. Um, our uh, special needs students uh, require what are called IEP conferences, mm -hmm. and the attendance at IEP conferences. Uh, significantly increase with the use of Zooms and technology. Mm -hmm. So we had more parental involvement with special needs students as we prepared for the new year. Uh, so that's a good thing, and I think we can use that as a model for communication to parents and others and other types of meetings as have been mentioned going forward. The negative thing is is that, that uh, many of our students made the choice to go to virtual, and they were ill-equipped to do so. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking dis dispositionally ill-equipped to do so. It takes a special person to have online education and be able to do it well, especially whenever they are in the third grade or the fifth grade or 12th grade even. Um, so we've learned that, that we're going to have to do more, uh, more uh, sifting of the wheat, if you will, about who can and who cannot go virtual and uh, as the model unfolds in the future. But we've, we've got to do something to encourage our kids to get back to face-to-face -face conversations next year. The very best thing that we can do for kids is to provide them a quality, well-prepared, caring teacher in their classroom that they can learn from face-to-face. -face. That's the best education model, period. Uh, technology is a convenience and it is a necessity, but the best way we can t educate our kids is to get them back in class. And so we, we need to do everything we can over the next several weeks to, and months to get them back to class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to make any broad generalizations here, but I, I imagine you have certain kids that opt for virtual learning that really shouldn't, which is kind of to your, to your point. Exactly. Yeah. You, uh, you've said it well, and unfortunately <laughs> that is the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you guys for your time. And we could probably do a whole hour plus on just the societal impact of kids not being in school uh, for the last year plus. Uh, it'll be a, a fascinating study as we go forward. Well, thank you guys for joining me this afternoon. This has really been a great, a great discussion and kind of going back and re reliving some of those days. Uh, I told someone earlier that the pandemic, you know, in, in one sense was an incredible thing to see, to see how people responded, uh, how the, the, the true calling behind healthcare got to, got to live itself out. And I'm sure as educators, you saw the same thing. Um, and as beautiful and as incredible and as vivid as that memory is in my mind, I hope I never see it again. <laughs> I'm ready for it to move on. Um, I use the term a lot, you know, blessed to be a blessing. We, we uh, as, as healthcare providers in this community, we're, we're blessed to take care of this community. We're blessed to, to partner with you. And through that, that blessing, you've been able to bless families, been able to bless kids, um, uh, your employees, your staff, uh, that go on and on. And so uh, it really is an example, I think, of, of being blessed to be a blessing. And uh, thank you guys for taking time to uh, relive this story. And uh, thank you for your, your partnership. Really appreciate your time today. And thank, thank you, you guys thank you. for thank listening. You.